Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this podcast of New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund, and I'm your host. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we'll be looking at the history of football, that is soccer, in apartheid-era South Africa. Our guest is Chuck Core. His book is More Than Just a Game, Soccer Versus Apartheid, the most important soccer story ever told, which he co-authored with Marvin Close. Chuck is a long-established historian of sports who has published books on the English soccer club West Ham United and on the Major League Baseball Players Union. But, as he says in his interview, the book More Than Just a Game is the most significant project in his career. Based upon a remarkable collection of documents and numerous interviews, the book tells the story of the Makana Football Association, the soccer league that was founded in the 1960s by political prisoners on Robben Island. Rather than a collection of scrapped-together sides playing pickup games for exercise, the Makana FA was a carefully structured organization with league administrators, trained referees, and established clubs governed by constitutions and officers. As Chuck explains, the leaders of the Makana FA sought to carry out their work properly, with all seriousness. Not only did these political prisoners view the running of a football league as preparation for when they would govern a free South Africa, they also believed deeply in the importance of sports for building a sense of community, instilling values, and building character. This is a remarkable story, and as Chuck says, if not for this story, the heroic work of little-known foot soldiers in the struggle against apartheid would have been lost to history. In the course of our conversation, we turn far beyond soccer, to the struggles of political prisoners, to sports and politics, and to the overall aim of sports. As Chuck explains, the men he has interviewed and written about believe firmly that sports was about far more than fun. So let's turn to the interview. Okay, let's turn our attention to, to Robben Island. So how and when was, was Robben Island established as a prison, and who were the the men who were first brought to the island and then eventually became the founders of the of the football association there? Well, the Robben Island, as we know it, was set up as a prison in 1960, a maximum security mm-hmm. prison. Uh, it was used as a prison as early as the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, the Dutch used it. Uh, the English used it uh, to uh, imprison uh, some of the uh, South African natives who opposed the colonial rule. It was a leper colony at one time. <clears throat> it uh, was a naval base during World War II. And uh, when the uh, opposition to apartheid really began to galvanize after the Sharpeville massacre in 1960, that's when the authorities decided they needed someplace special to uh, send the most, what they felt were the most dangerous opponents to the politics of apartheid and to the politics of the uh, the national government. So the men start coming there in, in basically in 63. It opens in 61. The real influx of prisoners, uh, it starts in 63. Um, everybody on the island, every prisoner on the island, uh, is in uh, fulfills three qualifications. They're all male. Uh, they're all what South Africans would call non-white. And the only way you can describe Robin Island is by using the apartheid categories where everybody was in one of four racial groups. You were white, uh, you were African, uh, Bantu, black. Uh, you were colored, which was mixed race, or you were uh, you were Asian. So everybody on the island is male. Everybody on the island is one of the three non-white categories. And everybody on the island is a political prisoner. Now, in the lexicon of South African jurisprudence, there is no such thing as political prisoner. 
So technically, everybody who was on the island was there for a crime. Uh, the, the crimes that most of them were accused and convicted of were conspiracy, uh, sedition, subversion, sabotage, uh, violation of the Prohibition of Communism Act. Uh, in reality, uh, the, vast, the prisoners were sentenced for everything from uh, reading Maoist literature to distributing trade union literature to calling for boy, peaceful boycotts uh, of uh, various businesses or various government activities. Um, my favorite is somebody who was convicted of conspiracy to uh, overthrow the government. Uh, the charge was that he was... Uh, uh, he was guilty of having conspired with persons unknown to the prosecution at a time unknown to the prosecution, at a place unknown to the prosecution. And it was the responsibility of his attorney to disprove that he conspired with persons unknown at a time unknown, at a place unknown. And no matter what the government says, uh, everybody on the island was a political prisoner. And there are two major categories of political prisoners they're the ones who are in the B section, which was the isolation section, and they represent less than 5% of the prisoners. And my guess is your listeners and most Americans, and for that matter, most South Africans, uh, the only thing they know about the island is what they've heard about the prisoners in B section. That was Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu and Govan and Becky and Ahmed Kitrada. In other words, the leadership of the anti-apartheid resistance that they wanted to quarantine, the overwhelming majority of the prisoners were in communal cells. Uh, they were being uh, worked together. They were worked in the stone quarry together. Uh, they were given minimal rations. They were given uh, minimal uh, clothing. Uh, there are no beds, by the way. There's just a mat, uh, and they basically slept as though they could almost be stacked on top of one another. And for the first couple of years, apartheid operates even within the prison. Um, Africans were given short pants, uh, T-shirts, and sandals. Uh, Coloreds and Asians were given long pants, undershirts, shirts, socks, and shoes. Uh, The distinction being that the government regarded all African men as boys, and boys wear short pants and sandals. Uh, They were given different rations. The African prisoners weren't given any meat with their food. Uh, So these these petty, destructive distinctions that marked apartheid even operated within the prison. Um, The everyday life of a prisoner in the community, by the way, um, with rare exception for the rest of the time we talk, I'm not going to make any reference to Mandela or Sisulu or the prisoners in B section, uh, with one small exception later on. Um, the uh, standard working day in the life of a prisoner was to get up shortly after daybreak. Um, You might or might not be able to take a shower. There's no hot water on the island, and showers are done in cold seawater. I don't know whether you've ever tried to soak yourself in in cold seawater. It's not very effective. Uh, They would be given some uh, porridge or something like it, some coffee or what passed for coffee, Uh, Then they would be uh, herded up in lines, sort of four abreast, uh, marched out at double time through a small channel that had barbed wire on both sides of it and a barbed wire canopy. And they would work basically until close to sunset at uh, Stone Quarry. Uh, For the first year or so, what they did was break uh, pieces of slate and throw it into the water to build a breakwater because until they built a breakwater, they were walking, working in ice water up to their ankles. Uh, then they quarried the stone, and the first thing they did with it was to build the prison. The, the prison that greeted them was too old and too small, so the prisoners actually constructed the prison that remains to this day. And for those of us who have seen Bridge on the River Kwai and treated it with disbelief, I can assure you that on Robben Island, not only did the prisoners build the prison, first generation of prisoners, they are intensely proud of the care and skill with which they built it. And uh, in a couple of cases, they were able to uh, carve their names into it, and if the guards didn't see it until the cement dried, then it was too much trouble to get rid of it. 
Uh, and then the other thing they did in the quarry uh, was break um, large stones into small stones and small stones into smaller stones and smaller stones into dust. Uh, they used that for some paving, but most of all, they, it was the kind of mindless work that the authorities wanted to use to try and destroy their will to resist. And so in your book, you talk about the, the brutality of the guards, you talk about the severity of, of prison life, and, and really there were no, at first, there were no allowed activities. There was no exercise in the yard. There was, there was just hard labor. And so, so within this rigidly controlled environment, soccer didn't start as, a, as an outside activity. How did, uh, how did they start playing football at the prison? Well, that actually speaks to uh, what differentiates a political prisoner from a common criminal. Uh, let me go back to one point you raised in passing. Uh, we tried, if anything, in the book to minimize our discussion about the brutality. The guards basically had an open season. on the All the guards on the island, after the first few months, all the guards are white because the authorities were afraid that some non-white guards might begin to empathize with the prisoners. Uh, the guards uh, were, many of them were illiterate, many of them were the lowest ranking in the prison, in the prison hierarchy. Uh, they had grown up in a system that treated black people as non-people, and everybody on the island, as far as they, was con they were concerned, were communist terrorists who were trying to take away their country from them. So they could, within certain bounds, uh, the guards could exercise any form of brutality they wanted on the prison, on the prisoners. The one exception to that is the authorities didn't want anybody to die on the island. Um, from the 1950s, or certainly from 1960 onward, South African government waged a nonstop propaganda campaign to try and convince people, particularly in the UK, the US, Canada, and Australia, that apartheid basically was a benign system that was meant to raise all races, uh, that all these stories of brutality were just imaginary, and that the people in opposition to apartheid were communist revolutionary terrorists. So it would have been bad PR for somebody to die on the island, uh, which is not to say people didn't die uh, in prison. They usually died in detention. Uh, the torture that was commonplace in South African prisons the beatings, the torture, the electric shock, the waterboarding, throwing people out windows, uh, that would happen in detention. That's before you were in prison, so you weren't a part of the system. And I think the best way to let people know what Robin Island was meant to do is a story uh, about Sadiq Isaacs, who we'll talk about later, who is probably the most influential of the prisoners involved in the creation of soccer on the island. Uh, Sadiq is about five foot six, 130 pounds, wispy little mustache, and he's a scientist. He taught physics and mathematics. And when he was in detention, he was, uh, there were too many political prisoners, so he was put in a cell with a, quote, common criminal who was about six foot five, 300 pounds, mouthful of gold teeth. And Sadiq, being the inquisitive scientist, said to this man, uh, what are you here for? And the guy said, well, I'm accused of either five or six murders, about a dozen rapes, and I don't know how many assaults. What are you here for? And Sadiq sort of quietly said, well, um, I'm involved in politics. And this guy drew in his breath and looked at him and said, politics, that's dangerous stuff, man. <laughs> and it was. And the purpose of Robben Island was to make sure that people knew that politics, i.e. trying to change the system, that politics was dangerous stuff and it wasn't something you should do. Um, after the Sharpeville Massacre, when uh, close to 70 Africans were shot after in the midst of a peaceful protest, most of them shot in the back while trying to run away from the police, uh, about six or eight of them were children. Uh, after Sharpeville, then it was clear to the opponents of apartheid uh, that peaceful protest, A, wasn't going to be tolerated, and B, even if it was tolerated, it wasn't going to do any good. So they began to organize other ways to combat the system. And the response to that is the government's crackdown, the various states of emergency, 
Uh, and uh, Robben Island is the ultimate way of discouraging people. It's supposed to serve three purposes. Uh, one is to punish you for opposing the government. Uh, the second is to uh, decapitate the activists and the leadership from the general population. And the third is to act as an object lesson uh, to other people that don't get involved in politics. There is a fourth, by the way, and it's to break the men on the island so when they were released, they would recognize the error of their ways and they wouldn't get involved in politics again. Uh, if you're sentenced to the island, you will serve every day of your sentence. If you're sentenced to life, you are meant to be there for life. I have uh, two friends that I interviewed years ago who got to Robben Island before Nelson Mandela. They left long after he did. They each served 28 years in prison. And if the government had not changed, if freedom had not come to South Africa, they would still be on the island today. Mm -hmm. They were sentenced in 1962. Um, if you were sentenced to, as Lizo Satoto was, to 16 and a half years, you knew to uh, a, exactly the day you were going to be released because it would be exactly 16 years and six months from the time you started your sentence. So that's the life. Uh, the other thing that differentiates political prisoners is one analogy you might make is between them and POWs. Or POW is in prison because he participated in something that he thought was important in a cause. Political prisoner is on Robben Island for the very same reason. So what they had to try and find was a way to not be broken psychologically, but also and all, they had to figure out ways to maintain their, their dignity and their courage to be part of the struggle, but also to figure out ways to train themselves for what every one of them believed would be the case, that before they died, there would be a free South Africa. Uh, that being the case, political prisoners are fairly adept at figuring out ways to game the system. And somehow they got hold of a set of prison regulations. You have to realize that South Africa was a police state. There's no question about it. And like so many police states, they, they love to have written rules and they love to show themselves in the outside world that they live up to their rules. Well, two of the things that the prisoners discovered is that any prisoner who is incarcerated for more than a certain number of days has the right to recreation. Second thing is that all prisoners who were sentenced to more than, I think it was one month, but might have been longer than that, all prisoners have the right to file written complaints, and the prison authorities must, either every week or every two weeks, have a ranking member of the hierarchy available to accept written complaints. Now, it doesn't mean they have to do anything about the complaints. It also means they can penalize you for making a complaint. And in the case of Robin Island, that usually meant having your rations cut in half for the next week. So 1963, uh, the prisoners got together and they decided to form a joint campaign to demand the right to play soccer as part of the recreation. And in order to do this, each cell block nominated two or three men each week, and it was always different men every week because you didn't want the same guys to go hungry. And they would go down to the deputy chief warden's office with a written petition saying they demand the right to recreation, they demand the right to play football. And he would shove in his desk drawer and say no, and then they would get their rations cut. And then the following week, there'd be another delegation from each of the cells. This went on for three and a half years. Uh, when they finally got the right to play football, a lot of the prisoners will tell you, as much as they wanted to play football, the campaign to win the right was more important than the objective. This was the first time they had ever forced anything out of the prison authorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, they succeeded for a couple of reasons. One is is the authorities just got kind of worn down. But the other reasons are more important. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the South African government staged this decades-long propaganda campaign. Well, they decided that one way to show the outside world that Robben Island wasn't all that bad was to invite the International Red Cross to visit periodically. 
And after a while, one of the chief wardens came up with a bright idea. If you show the uh, International Red Cross that the prisoners are actually allowed to play football, you then hope that they will conclude that the prison can't be all that bad a place. The other is the activities of a remarkable woman. Helen Sussman was a member of parliament. That, she, that meant by definition she was white. She was the only member for years of her party, the Progressive Party. And as a member of parliament, she demanded the right to visit national facilities, one of which she wanted to visit periodically was Robben Island. Now, she met Mandela. She met some of the other hierarchy. But she also met prisoners. She met prisoners in the communal section. And she was just shocked that uh, when she asked them what was wrong, they would tell her that the food was terrible, the guards were brutal, and by the way, we want the right to play football. And she took that up as her cause, too. In 1967, the authorities went into the cells and they picked two teams from different cells. They gave them a football a little while before that to practice with, and they staged a match. And the prisoners played their first football match, and the authorities thought that they would be incredibly grateful and they would stop moaning about things. And the next thing the prisoners did is said, well, that's fine. Uh, now uh, we're going to not play because we want to set it up properly, and we have certain demands we want to make. And by the way, one of the things uh, in the future, we will not play football if you choose the teams. This is our football. We will control it. We will control it completely. And uh, until that time comes when we think we're ready to play, we're not going to play. Uh, the authorities, the chief warden, couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, what had happened is the prisoners had held a series of caucuses in the cells. They had held a series of meetings. Prisoners on Robben Island will find a reason to meet over anything. Uh, they will have caucuses about anything. Um, I asked, as an academic, I know how deadly committee meetings can be. Uh, they're an excuse too often for, uh, rather than making a decision, let's refer it to committee. I've asked virtually every ex-prisoner, why did you have so many committee meetings? The answer is always the same, two reasons. One is, what's the, the one thing prisoners have the most of? Time. Would you rather spend your time moaning about your family and wondering about your sweetheart and that you can't see your kids grow up? Or would you rather be in, in a heated discussion either about politics or about sports? The other is, and this is critical to understanding why football was so important. Uh, for the first couple of years on the prison, the two major political factions, the Pan-Africanist Congress, which is the majority, and the ANC, wouldn't cooperate on virtually anything. They wouldn't work in the same groups. They wouldn't hold seminars together. They wouldn't hold discussions together. The only thing they cooperated on was opposition to the authorities. The first thing that they actively got together and held joint meetings and set up a joint committee was to plan to play football. Football was so important to them that they were willing to set aside political differences. And political differences on the island are a way of life, and they are not to be taken lightly. Uh, they, they realized that they, could, they had to organize football if they're going to play it, in part because if they got the right to play, there was limited amount of time, limited amount of space, so they had to come up with a single entity, and that's why they form a football league. So First of all, the Matyeni Football League. Matyeni means stones. And then a little while after that, the name was changed in honor of a Hosha chief named Makana. But uh, the prisoners sat down and told the authorities that we're going to decide how to run our football and when we have figured out what we want to do, we'll let you know, and then we'll start playing again. And the, the, the prison authorities found themselves in this dilemma. They were now bragging to the outside world that the prisoners were playing football. But the prisoners weren't playing mm -hmm. football. So they had to wait until the prisoners had their own meetings. I mean, prisoners would have meetings on all kinds of things, um, 
They found ways to smuggle tobacco into the prison, but they needed cigarette paper and they didn't want to waste writing paper because it was too valuable. Plus, writing paper doesn't make very good cigarette paper, but they had one source of paper that was be good for cigarette paper, and that was the Bibles that were provided to every cell block. And since there were multiple copies, they figured they could use at least one of them. But before they did that, they held meetings in virtually every cell block to decide on whether or not it was all right. Then they held another set of meetings to decide which sections of the Bible they should use first. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not just trivial. Yeah. So let me me jump in and ask, so once they had had permission to to organize football themselves, as you were saying earlier about the documents, they, this wasn't just pickup. This was uh, a league. It was, they had divisions, they had teams, they had team presidents, team secretaries. So this was, uh, this was a serious, they, they did it properly, as you were saying earlier. Well, uh, earlier we were talking about one of the best books done by a sports historian, Bob Edelman's book about sport in the Soviet Union. And the title is Serious Fun. And that is equally applicable to what went on on Robben Island. Uh, I asked uh, Indris Naidu, who was the first secretary in the Makana FA, uh, Indris, uh, why don't you just get a couple of footballs, blow them up, and uh, kick them around and have some fun? Because his explanation was when we got the right to play football, the first thing we did was get the balls. The second thing we did was blow them up. The third thing we did was form our committees. <laughs> And Indris's reply to me was, Chuck, you're a historian of England. You've lived in England for years. You know that sports is too important just to be fun. Uh, what they did is they created a set of committees. Uh, one committee was to write the Constitution for the Football League. Uh, then once the league had a structure, uh, individuals could form teams. Every team had to have a written Constitution, which was approved by the association. Uh, every team had to present a roster. Every team had three different levels uh, based on the competence of the players. So you had nine clubs, which meant 27 clubs in three leagues. Uh, the league had a constitution. Uh, they got a hold of a copy of the FIFA bylaws so that the, uh, the FA itself would meet FIFA regulations. Referees had to take a written test. Um, there was another committee that was in charge of groundskeeping. They uh, they figured out a way to burrow under the ground and tap into the, the pipes so they could irrigate their field. And the guards couldn't figure out why the only thing that seemed to grow grass well on the island was the players' football field. They didn't realize they were stealing water to get it done. Um And most of all, they established a disciplinary committee. And I think it is very important to note that the disciplinary committee generates more paper than all the rest of the committees put together. Uh, Paper was absolutely a treasure to the men on the island. They needed paper in order to take correspondence courses. They needed paper to write letters, although they were only allowed one letter every six months. Uh, And yet they use enormous quantities of paper every year on the business of football Matter of fact, when the Football Association held its general meeting every year, first thing they did is send out a written request to all the clubs. This is how many pieces of paper you owe us for this year. So uh, your characterization is dead right. What they created was a football league that would be the equal of anything in Johannesburg or Port Elizabeth or Cape Town. And it's only then that they began to play. So how many men at the at the height of it, how many men were involved? Well, uh, when the league gets started uh, in 1969, when it gets renamed, there were anywhere between 350 and 400 people who were registered to the various clubs. But that's actually a trivial figure. There were about 1,600 prisoners then. And there would be hundreds of prisoners who would come out every week to watch teams play. Um, I think you can make a very good case that football was more important to the spectators than it was to the players or the administrators. Players got the joy of being on the pitch. Lizo Satoto describes it beautifully. He said, when I was out there on the pitch in the sun, it was the only time I was out in the sun when I wasn't being worked to death. And after a while, when the 
uh, clubs got the, the permission to buy regular uniforms from a sporting goods store in Cape Town. It was the only time they'd ever been on the island where they were wearing anything but their prison uniforms. So all of that matters, but nothing mattered more than the joy it brought to the spectators uh, from Saturday afternoon. And for the first few years, they, they only played Saturday morning. Matches were only half an hour, so they could play that many more matches. From Saturday afternoon to Wednesday afternoon, the main topic of conversation on the island, other than politics, politics is the 12th good gorilla. Everybody talks about that. The most important other topic was to talk about last week's matches. When the fixture list came out on Wednesday afternoon, from Wednesday afternoon to Saturday morning, the most important topic of conversation was next week's matches. Uh, Each club had its supporters. They had banners. They had shouts. They were rude to one another. Uh, Being a supporter of Robin Island was the exact same thing as being a supporter of Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea, with two exceptions. Uh, The visiting supporters didn't have to travel to go to matches. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is there is not a single recorded instance of there being any physical altercation between prisoners uh, as a result of football. Rule number one, the absolute golden rule amongst political prisoners was that you never lay hands on another prisoner because that would show that you lack discipline. It would also give the guards a perfectly valid excuse to wade in with clubs and rifle butts and and uh, whips and just beat the hell out of prisoners. If you didn't know the match was taking place on Robben Island, you could mistake it for a a match being played in a league in parks all over the world. And and I was going to ask that, since you've done research on the history of of English soccer, in particular West Ham, uh, as you were doing research on on soccer on Robben Island and developing the project, did you see what parallels did you see between the development of soccer on Robben Island and the development of soccer in England in the late 19th and early 20th century? Well, there's some striking parallels. I mean, the first, the obvious one is they're both community based. Mm-hmm. That uh, so many of, well, virtually all the clubs that are in the league now in England either were factory teams, uh, settlement house teams, or church clubs. So you didn't play football as something extraneous to everyday life. It was just an extension of everyday life. And that was very much the case on the island. The other similarities are uh, speak to the basic humanity of the prisoners. Um, Everybody complains about the referees. I cannot for the life of me figure out why anybody would ever uh, consent to be a referee knowing that at the end of a match he was going to spend the next week living amongst people who might have thought he cost them a chance at the championship. Uh, It is an enormous sacrifice. Um, When I've asked referees why would they do it, they said, well, you can't have football without a referee. It's a form of public service. Well, it was, but it was a... I I was a referee, and that was was my view of it, too. I've refereed a number of sports, and I thought, I'm I'm being a good public servant. Well, I, uh, I... I gave a lecture a week and a half ago in Madrid to a class working on an MBA in sports studies, sports management. All of these people are working full-time, but they they come on weekends. And this particular Robin Island lecture, I decided to emphasize the role of the referee, and I decided to to philosophize a bit about referees. And there are basically two reactions people have to referees. Uh, When you win, you ignore them. When you lose, you hate them. I mean, I've never known anybody who goes out of his way to say, I I got to spend a wonderful 90 minutes with the referee today. And there was one of the students in the back of the class who, very expressive face, when I got to my little discourse on referees, he kept nodding feverishly. He had to leave after class. I didn't talk with him, but I asked uh, somebody else who he was. Oh, He's the man who refereed the Man United Schalke match a couple weeks ago. He's the top referee in Spain. And he clearly was agreeing with my point about you got to be slightly, either have to be slightly mad or completely selfless to want a referee in the circumstances of Robin Island. But they got, they got enough people to referee. 
the other thing that is similar to traditional football in England is just how passionate the supporters became, uh, how much supporters could hate one another. And also, I mean, go back to the point I raised earlier, the disciplinary committee is very busy. And that's because once you get people on the football pitch, they're going to act like they will anywhere else. They're going to get angry at the referee. They're going to take cheap shots at one another. Um, so I think the, the real key to your question, it's why it's such an important question, is the prisoners succeeded in creating a kind of ordinary run-of-the-mill football league in circumstances that are about as extraordinary as anything you could imagine. So once the uh, the approved soccer matches and the and the association began, it did bring about eventually uh, a change in the relationship between the prisoners and the guards and the administration, and and eventually led to the approval of uh, of other sports. Can you talk about that? Yes, I mean the. Uh... At first, the prison authorities' reaction was, okay, we're going to give it to them. These guys are basically skin and bones. They're going to last a couple of weeks, and then they're going to say, we're not going to do We're going to do something else. Well, just the opposite happened. You know, football becomes this, this almost sort of mania amongst the prisoners. Uh, there were a couple of immediate results. Um, one club out of the nine wrote into its constitution a provision that there shall be no discrimination within this club. Now, to you and me and the vast majority of people, discrimination is something based on race, ethnicity, gender, uh, sexual preference. On Robben Island, discrimination meant something. Within the prisoners itself, discrimination has a very distinctive meaning, and, that, and that's political discrimination. Uh, there were four clubs that were ANC, there were four that were PAC, and then there's this one, the Benong Football Club, that goes out of its way to say it will accept members from all political factions. The vast majority are PAC, because it was organized by Tony Souza, who was an active PAC member and the second best player on the island. Um, Tony is one of the keys to the book, and I asked him why he did this, why it had this... And he said, well, it was the right thing to do. Football should be a way to bring people together, not separate them. And I said, that's a very noble idea. I said, by the way, Tony, isn't there another reason that you might have done it? And he smiled at me and said, what do you have in mind? I said, didn't this mean you could recruit players on the basis of talent, no matter what their political affiliation was? And if you see the film, you'll recognize just how broad Tony's grin is. He gave me this huge smile, and he said, Chuck, I like to win. <laughs> and, and Manong FC, they were, I, I was thinking and reading it, they were the Barcelona of, uh, of Robben Island. They are champions every year. Tony is either the, the first or second uh, highest goal scorer. Uh, it was one of those examples um, I think it was H.L. Mencken described the missionaries in Hawaii as people who went to do good and stayed to do well, you know, people like the Dole family. Well, this is an example where Tony was doing something good, but he was also doing well as a result of it. And that's the, the one of the other things that makes political prisoners unique is that uh, they have a sense that they're, everything they do, it's vital purpose is to advance the cause and the cause is the overthrow of the apartheid regime if you let me backtrack for a moment to your question about uh, the parallels between the creation of the makana fa and the creation of english football there's one other thing that's probably the most important parallel uh, the men who created the fa in england sort of middle class victorian gentlemen were imbued with this public school spirit that football was good for you. Football was supposed to teach you social values. It was supposed to teach you humility. It was supposed to teach you how to work together. It was supposed to make you into a man. It was supposed to build character. 
In the case of a lot of the English teams, factory teams, it was also supposed to convince you not to do things like join trade unions and spend time in pubs. But in any case, the, the Victorian sporting ethos, which is the basis for so much of sports around the world, is this whole idea that sports is too important to just be games and sports builds good character. Well, the men who founded the Makana FA were in prison because they were reacting against one of the vestiges of Victorian imperialism, that is to say, racism. And yet they accept not only wholeheartedly, they more firmly believe in these Victorian values that sports is good for you than anybody I've ever met in England or Canada or Australia or New Zealand, let alone the U.S. I mean, they are walking advertisements. Now, at the same time, they'll tell you that they reject completely the political and racial baggage that the Victorians brought with them. But there's one thing that they, they know the Victorians got right, and that's the fact that sports is good for you. Sports teaches you values. Sports, in this case, sport taught some of them how to run a country. So I want to turn. You mentioned earlier uh, that you're not going to talk about Nelson Mandela in the interview, but but uh, since just about everyone associates Nelson Mandela with Robben Island, I have to I have to ask. He doesn't appear much in your book. Why is that? Well, because he was in the isolation section. Isolation section was not allowed to mingle at all with the other prisoners. Although both groups found ways to smuggle messages to one another, but there is one vignette about Mandela that speaks to the. The, the kind of basic uh, behavior of the authorities. There's one instance when Mandela and Sisulu and a few others were being taken out for their morning exercise walk on a Saturday morning. And they took them out the same time as a football match was taking place in an adjoining piece of turf. So suddenly, for the first time in years, a lot of the prisoners got to see Mandela and Sisulu and Mbeki. It also meant that Mandela and others got to see people playing football and enjoying it. And when the guards realized what was happening, the first thing they do is, is rush the isolation prisoners back into their cells. And then early the next week, they built a wall between the two sections. It was high enough so Mandela and others could never once again enjoy the pleasure of watching fellow prisoners play football. Uh, the authorities uh, do everything they can to humiliate and discomfort the prisoners, and that goes far above and beyond the beatings and the terrible food and the hard labor. So one prominent South African politician who did participate in the Makana FA is the current president, uh, Jacob Zuma. Can you talk about what his role yeah. is? Well, yeah, Jacob Zuma was the captain of the Rangers football club, which meant he was one of the founders of the league. He was described, this should come as no surprise, as one of the toughest defenders on the island. Uh, he was a hard man, uh, played fair, but was tough. Uh, one of the organizers of the league and the first chairman of the rugby uh, association uh, was Stephen Schwete, who was a very important figure in the negotiations between the Afrikaners and the ANC and became the first minister of sport in the, South, in the first South African freely elected government. But the most interesting of the, the prisoner politicians is a man named Dikang Mosaneki. Uh, Mosaneki was the youngest man ever sentenced to the island. He was a month one side or the other, I think, of 16. Uh, he uh, did the equivalent of a high school diploma, a university degree. He began to study law. Uh, interesting enough, he was elected as the first chairman of the Kana FA. The reason I, I say interestingly is that uh, South African culture places a large emphasis on the wisdom of age. And here you have one of the youngest men on the island who was elected to this incredibly important position. Uh, he was a member of the PAC. So the secretary who runs the day-to-day -day affairs of the FA was Indris Naidu, who's second-generation ANC. Uh, Mosaneki headed up the committee that wrote the Constitution, 
for the McConaughey, uh, which runs to pages and pages and lists every possible eventuality that the that the FA. Well, years after that, Mosinecki was the primary figure on another committee to write a constitution, except this time it was the constitution for the new South Africa. And today, Takang Mosinecki is the deputy chief justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. And his former uh, colleagues on the island like to point out that he got his training, his first legal briefs, were uh, documents he wrote as a result of misconduct by various people in the football association. So in reading the book, the person who struck me as, as the central character and maybe even the hero of the story is someone who, who wasn't a player and didn't go on to prominence in, in post-apartheid South Africa, and that's Sadiq Isaac. Can you talk something about him and, and what he did on, on Robben Island? Well, I think you're, you're, if there is a figure that jumps out to me, it is also Sadiq Isaacs. At best, he played in the third level. Uh, he's uh, a Muslim from the Western Cape uh, who's a scientist. He was a high school teacher after he got out of prison, and while he was under a banning order, he got a Ph.D. in mathematics. Um, he and Tony Sue's are probably the closest of friends, and Tony says, Sadiq taught me mathematics, and I tried to teach him how to kick a ball. The emphasis is on the word tried. Uh, Sadiq is portrayed in the film as being somewhat inept at football. Uh, when people have said, this, you know, doesn't Sadiq get troubled by that? He said, no, it's a, it's a function of reality. Uh, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for acquiring materials to make bombs. You could go into any pharmacy in the 1960s and buy the various ingredients you would, make, you would need to make a bomb. Uh, while he was on the island, uh, he got a second master's degree in psychology. He became uh, a kind of avid watcher of what was going on around him, and he decided he was going to figure out ways to stop other prisoners from succumbing to the kind of mental drudgery. So he organized a series of classes. He became the librarian for the island. He organized a first aid committee. He uh, was on the committee of his uh, of his club. Uh, he was on the disciplinary committee for a while. He helped organize rugby on the island. He convinced the warden to let them use excess cement to build tennis courts on the island. He created the Robben Island Annual Summer Games, which were also called the Robben Island Olympics. And those included uh, standard events, but they also had things like uh, egg and spoon race for older men. Um, he, I think it's fair to say that if you were to do a poll of prisoners who served on the island between 1963 and 1976 and ask them who was the one man who had the greatest effect on their lives, it would be Sadiq Isaacs, whether it was as a tutor. Uh, he wrote letters for some of them. Uh, he wrote appeals for some of them. He has... Uh, a scientist's precision about him, but he also has the capacity to write the most devastatingly sarcastic prose of anyone I've ever known. Uh, he spent an extra year in prison because he was accused of attempting to bring the prison authorities into disrepute. And when I asked him about that, I said, you were guilty. He said, of course I was guilty of that. He found a way to manufacture a master key that would open all the cell doors on the island. Uh, he plotted what would could have been the only escape that ever took place from the island. And a couple of days before they were going to use the master key, the authorities staged a, 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 a surprise search and they found the key. He served about 10 years and so, uh, 10 months, pardon me, in solitary confinement, which was longer than anybody in the history of the island. Uh, he was beaten repeatedly. He had his jaw broken and knocked out of place with a uh, with a rifle butt. He was uh, guilty of smuggling messages out of solitary confinement. The uh, punishment for that is solitary confinement. So since he was there already, they strapped him up to a wire bed support and flogged him. Um, 
He's a man who uh, who brought a certain degree. Oh, he also organized uh, the Glee Club and the Theatrical Society. He's a man who refused to let his own mind deteriorate, and consequently, he made he found ways to make sure that other people wouldn't go into what he called mental torpor while they were on the island. And he is he's a monumental figure in the history of sports on the island. And the intriguing part is there's only one sport that Sadiq will ever tell you he was particularly uh, uh, good at. And it's probably the one sport that would not be encouraged on Robben Island. He was a first-class swimmer. Oh. <laughs> uh, so so that's, a, that's a wonderful tribute. And somebody, somebody like him, if you hadn't found those documents or been shown those documents, he would have just... Uh, he would have disappeared in history, correct? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say the most important thing about the book is that it, it, it well, it, two things. One is it rescues mm-hmm. uh, what I would prefer to call the foot soldiers of the struggle, the, the sort of nameless, faceless people to history and, and popular legend. It takes a Mandela or a Sisulu to give voice to be the symbol for the struggle but it took the thousands of men who were in the communal section of Robben Island uh, to be part of the struggle, to train the next generation, to keep the cause alive. And uh, all five of the men who provide them basic material for the book, plus Digang Mosinecki and Inris Naidu and others, uh, they're the men who, uh, who created a new South Africa by effectively destroying the old one. And yeah, and if it had not been for these documents, there was no reason for anybody to look at their lives. Uh, all right, Mosaneki went on to have a very distinguished career. Tokyo Sexwala, who's the next generation, is one of the wealthiest businessmen. Uh, Stephen Schwete was a cabinet minister. Jacob Zuma is the president of South Africa. But uh, I don't think anybody would have paid attention to the fact that uh, uh, Zuma was a footballer who became president. Uh, the second thing that's, I think, important about this story is actually uh, was told to me by the assistant to the assistant director of the film. Uh, and my wife and I were in South Africa for the first two weeks of shooting. We were being driven back to the airport by this relatively young man who was uh, colored, mixed race from the Cape. And, he, and the director had done a wonderful thing. He had had everybody who worked in the film read the scripts. They all knew the story. They were all invested in it. And this guy turned to us as he was driving, and he said, would you like to know why this, this story is so important to us? And I said, I certainly would. That I went to a very good high school. I went to the best high school in Cape Town, best colored high school in Cape Town. He said, I took lots of history courses. And I can tell you the name of every damn Dutch ship and every Portuguese governor, but I can't tell you a thing about our history because we weren't allowed to have a history. And he said, what this story is going to do is show people like me and younger people that not only did we have a history, but we have something to really be proud of. We built something, whether it was in prison or whether it was someplace else. So, I mean, I think that's, it is a story based on a sport. But I would prefer to think of it as uh, a story about dignity and a story about struggle and a story about values. It's also, uh, I think, really important to, to understand it's a story about how values get transmitted. And before I forget, I, I just want to say this because it's important and you can figure out a way to get it into the conversation. Uh, there was a, a major event in the island, there was a, a demonstration surrounding a football match that came as close as you can to tearing the island apart. And it took them five months to decide it, and uh, it's an excruciatingly detailed trial. And um, it happened in 1971, and I've been with groups of former prisoners as late as 2003 where when the subject comes up, they will still look at one another, and one will say, you're my best friend, but I'm still never forgiven you for that. But after this thing was over, Marcus Solomon, who's one of the men featured in the Marcus believes more fervently in the Victorian value of sport than anybody I've ever met, any place in the world. Marcus was uh, 
uh, the vice chairman of his club, and he was giving his semi-annual talk, and he, he spent about a third of it talking about what he thought was wrong with sports, that we're spending too much time worrying about wins. We're spending too much time worrying about where we finish in the league. He said we have to remember that sports is meant to bring joy to our lives. It's meant to be a form of social cement. It's meant to bring out the best of us. It's meant to, to show the values. He said, and we've, we've forgotten that. We're too caught up in trying to win and trying to brag and trying to show how good we were. He said, we have to stop that. We have to rethink where we're at. And then you can't tell it from the written page, but my guess is he then paused. And he said, now some of you might think this is just totally unrealistic and these are just noble ideals with no basis in fact. And for those of you who feel that way, let me answer that question with a question of my own. If we have no noble ideals, would we be on this island? Well, to me, that's the essence of what the story is all about. Mm -hmm. These are people who were on the island not because they had noble ideals, but because they were willing to act out their noble ideals. They were willing to to stage strikes. They were willing to build bombs. They were willing to go into exile. And they were on the island because of their ideals, and they had to find some way to perpetuate those ideals. And as somebody who loves sports and consequently recognizes most of what's wrong with it, but as somebody who studies it and realizes that it's important, I think the, the essence of the book is that these men found in sports, in this case in soccer, in creating an organized soccer league, not Steve McQueen in The Great Escape throwing a baseball against the wall, not Sylvester Stallone punching a bag mindlessly. I mean, these are guys who are doing it for real. They found in sport a way to maintain their ideals, but also to train themselves for the future when those ideals would matter. So, so we're almost out of time, and I want to ask a, a larger uh, interpretive question, which I think picks up with what, with what you just said. You wrote a paper years ago called uh, Sports is Politics. And in just the last few ye- weeks here in the U.S., following the killing of Osama bin Laden and the responses of, of some athletes to that, this issue of sports and politics has come up with some sports writers and on sports talk shows and a couple of the, the commentators that I've read have made the point that, that Americans just do not like sports, sports mixing with politics. And, and so you've done research on contentious issues in baseball history, and I wonder if, if you'd agree with that. And if so, do, do American sports fans miss an important dimension of, of sports in, in trying to keep sports and politics separate? That's a great question. First of all, I wouldn't limit it to Americans. I think, uh, if if anything, I think we've done rather better than the British or the European. I mean, we do have a John Carlos and a Tommy Smith and a Muhammad Ali and a David Megacy. And over the years, you notice how the opinion towards them has changed when the cause that they took up isn't at the forefront of our consciousness. Um, I think that uh, since the 1960s, American, even American sports fans have been forced slowly but surely to recognize that sports doesn't exist in some hermetically sealed world of its own. I mean, the, the first book that I saw that really dealt with this was Bob Lipsight's Sports World. And the title is really the key to the book. Sports World, as, as you know, is one word for Lipsight. And uh, I think that, that we do both ourselves and either historians or sports journalists do ourselves a grave injustice and we underestimate the intelligence of the reader when we perpetuate this idea that sports and politics don't mix. Simple fact that any historian should attest to is that sports and politics have always mixed. There's always been a political dimension to sports. And, and my advice to people is when you hear somebody, and this goes back to the Avery Brundages of the world, and uh, 
some of the, the English sports administrators. It also goes back to uh, so many college football coaches uh, who want to tell their players how to act but want to say that this isn't a political decision. My immediate reaction is when somebody tells me that sports and politics don't mix and shouldn't mix, what they're really saying is your politics shouldn't mix my sports. My politics aren't politics. Avery Brundage, who made sure the Olympics maintained a political decision, that is to say to exclude most people who couldn't afford to participate, when they made a political decision to not oppose apartheid, I mean, not opposing apartheid is a political decision. Brundage said it wasn't. Well, you get your choice. You know, you're one way or the other. You can either have South Africa come to the Olympics or not. So basically, the people who said that politics and sports shouldn't mix wanted to maintain the status, the political status quo with which they felt comfortable. And I just think it's basically a fraudulent statement that politics and sports don't mix. Sports is part of the real world, and politics is an omnipresent feature of the real world. So we have time for one last last question, and that is, what project are you working on now? Um, I'm not. Uh, you're, ta- of, you're taking your emeritus title seriously then? Well, all the, virtually all the research about Robin Island took place after I retired. Uh, the book was written long after I retired. The film was written after I retired. What I'm really interested in now, and I've been fortunate enough, uh, is this story I think is the most important one of the most important sports-related stories that that I've ever run across, not just because I did it. I I think the readers agree to that. And I've gotten a whole lot of invitations to talk about it elsewhere, to take a brief documentary to show it. And that's basically what I'm doing more than anything. Every autumn I teach, I give a few lectures in England as part of an international MA in sport history and management and in an average year, we get 30 students from 25 countries. That's a lot of fun. And over the 10 years I've been doing that, I can guarantee you that that there are two or three things that students remember. The top of the list is the Robin Island lecture, and then probably a lecture on intercollegiate sports, which is my contention is the only thing that America does differently from the rest of the world in sports. America's only novel contribution is spectator-oriented, big-money-based intercollegiate athletics. Uh, so I, I keep myself plenty busy with that, but do I have another long-term project I want to be involved in? Not on a bet. No. So if, if someone comes with, with a box of documents and, and, Professor, take a look at this, you're you're going to resist? Well, I, I can't tell you what the, what the subject is, but I was presented with exactly that. Oh, really? A, a subject that is as almost as intriguing as Robin Island and would have the same kind of path-breaking possibilities to it. And what I did do is, is said that the first thing I did after I said no but was to call my co-author Marvin Close and said, Marvin, here's a project that I think is going to interest you. And the arrangement we basically worked out is that it's his research and his writing, and I will act as a sounding board and a kind of backstop, and if you will, a, a consultant to him on it. But that's as far as I want to commit myself to, to being responsible for getting something done and for facing another deadline. But if this thing comes to pass, I will let you know about it. Uh, he's hard at work on it, and it's uh, it's precisely... Uh, the, the kind of thing you said. It's here's these boxes and boxes of documents. Here's this potential of dozens of interviews with people who were involved in it. And I said, thanks very much, but let me call Marvin. So, Chuck, I want to thank you for coming on the program. I'll, I'll tell you, I really enjoyed the book. I've already recommended it to others. And, and it is, as the title said, and as you said earlier, uh, an important story, and also the the book is is very readable and and also very moving. I would say I, I really enjoyed it. So so thank you again for joining me on New Books and Sports. Well, thanks thanks very much. 
Other thing, I guess uh, I, I mentioned in email, um, apparently the book has done well enough in this country uh, that St. Martin's is going to come out with a paperback edition in the autumn, and uh, they're going to make some of the corrections, or they're going to make all the corrections we told them. So that's good news. Uh, the other is is something that's uh, it's both a question of satisfaction, if you will, vanity. Um, I've never had anything that I've written come out in translation. And I'm looking over bookshelf right now, and there's the Dutch, Italian, Japanese, and Czech editions. And the Korean is on its way, and hopefully there will be a Spanish and a Portuguese edition someday. And that means, this goes back to your next to last question, that means there are people all over the world who are getting to understand that the battle to defeat apartheid was won by a lot of people that they never heard of. Congratulations on finding a great project and and doing it really well. So I I really enjoyed it, and thank you again. You've been listening to an interview with Charles Kaur about his book, More Than Just a Game, Soccer Versus Apartheid, The Most Important Soccer Story Ever Told, co-written with Marvin Close. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. If you enjoyed the interview, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.